Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. In late January, Hindenburg Research, a Wall Street trading firm less than five years old, accused the multi-billion dollar Indian industrial conglomerate group Adani of nothing less than the greatest fraud in economic history. I'm focused in on Adani right now. We're seeing the bonds absolutely tank across the empire. The Adani Group shares are in a freefall, declining for the second straight day after U.S. short seller Hindenburg Research scathing report on the conglomerate. They claim that uh, Adani is uh, accused of stock price manipulation using shell companies that are then using their money to pump up the stock of Adani Enterprises. So it's a wide-ranging report that really raises some big concerns about who is many times seen as the biggest and most powerful name in India. Hindenburg claims it's found evidence of brazen stock manipulation and financial fraud at the group owned by billionaire Gautam Adani. He was like a supernova of wealth. Last year, he became the world's second richest man at $155 billion. Remember, last year was a year that all the top 10 billionaires in the world lost money. He gained $55 billion. He sort of came out of nowhere. Hindenburg also revealed it had taken a short position in Adani Group, effectively putting its money where its mouth is. To make money, Hindenburg needs other investors to believe in its research and for the value of the Adani Group to fall. More importantly, Hindenburg needs to be right. Otherwise, it could face ruin. Hindenburg Research is just one of many firms otherwise referred to as activist investors. They risk everything, livelihood and reputation, to unearth corporate fraud. And when we do what we do, if we do it well, we get sued, but that's basically the nature of this beast of activist short selling. That's Carson Block. He runs Muddy Waters Research, an activist investment firm. So in this episode, we're going to try to get under the skin of an activist investor. We want to find out the role activist investors play in the market and what drives them to take so much risk to right supposed injustices. Who in the markets is not lying and cheating was my question. That's coming up. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to The Investor Download. Carson Block has been in finance in some form or other for the best part of 30 years. Growing up in a broken home and in a neighbourhood he described as being full of phonies, he used to help his dad, a microcap equity analyst, study, type and edit his equity reports. And having accepted he wasn't good enough to become a professional baseball player, he decided he wanted to be an investor. He went to college and studied a degree in business with a concentration in finance and graduated in 1998 with an idea of setting up an equity research firm in China. Um, so I went to China right after graduation, took about six or seven months to realize like I was probably a decade too early or more because there were just no investable companies listed the mainland exchanges at that time. It was deliberate policy to not allow good companies to list. Having been burned by China, Block returned to the US. Eventually, he teamed up again with his dad, who had moved to Los Angeles. Together, they wrote long-orientated equity research on microcap companies. 
But again, Block encountered an undercurrent of nefarious business practices. And so this was 99 through 02. And turns out that we had gotten lied to by a lot of managements and used by them because my father, and then I was developing a, a client base also, our clients were fund managers. And so we would take the managements on non-deal roadshows and our clients, our institutional clients would buy the stocks up, but it turns out that managements were dumping in many cases. And back then their stock sales weren't public uh, for 45 days after the sale. So, I mean, it was just, we were totally being used confronted a couple of these managements. They lied to us. One of the companies ended up being adjudicated a fraud. I mean, that that was this crazy story where I set up a meeting with one of my institutional clients, a portfolio manager in LA, and my father and the CFO of this company went to the meeting. CFO's name was Jeff Conway. He was CFO of a company called Rentway that no longer exists. It was acquired by Rent-A-Center. And so Conway looked my client in the eye, pointed at my father, Bill, and said, in the 17 quarters Bill has been following us, we've never missed one of his earnings estimates. That's how good a handle we have on the numbers. I mean, he said that with such conviction. So the next week, when he was supposed to meet my father in New York, he didn't show up and the stock didn't open. And then there was an announcement, uh-oh, accounting fraud, Conway pled guilty, ultimately. Disillusioned, Block returned to his studies. This time, though, he went to law school to equip himself with weapons to help him become a better investor and to protect himself against financial predators. After graduating, he practised law in the US. But for Block, it was always about being an investor and entrepreneur, and he couldn't resist another pop at China when the opportunity presented itself. I took the offer in Shanghai, and I was with Jones Day for about nine months, left, started the first self-storage business in mainland China, got just smoked almost every single day of having that business. But through that, in China, I learned to see the matrix. And I also, during that time, I co-authored Doing Business in China for Dummies. So I absorbed experiences from a lot of other foreign entrepreneurs in China. And it just taught me so much about illusion versus reality and how almost anything can be faked. Which led him back again to his father in 2009. By that time, Blockstad had got interested in Chinese companies, microcaps that had gone public in the US via reverse mergers. He was super excited about them because they all had these great growth stories. And, you know, me, I was cynical. I, I mean, I didn't think that the numbers were fake. I just, I thought that, you know, the idea, I, I basically thought, look, the chairman from these companies are going to be stealing money out of the companies, but that will be reflected in numbers. Question is, is it an acceptable amount of money they're stealing? And if it's thus far been acceptable, will it remain acceptable? Or are they basically just, you know, trying to get a massive payday and screw investors? So that was kind of how I went into this. So I, I thought, based on that orientation, I thought my father was barking up the wrong tree, but he wanted me to help him. And so I did. And I looked at this first company called Orient Paper. And again, like it was audited, right? So why wouldn't the numbers be real? Well, this is, I would soon thereafter learn that auditors, like literally, I'm not being facetious, auditors' remit is not to look for fraud. Their remit is to, ensure or to give assurance that the correct accounting standards have been applied and that they've been applied correctly. So if you have a management that's handing auditors a bunch of fake 
contracts and fake invoices and fake bank statements. Like that's all you need to commit fraud, basically. The auditors aren't looking to try to, they're not trying to figure out whether the documents are fake. They take them at face value. So that is how Orient Paper had just reported $103 million in revenue in 2009, but the real revenue was about two and a half to $3 million. I mean, it was over, it was like 96, 97% fake. And that's what we found in China. So we exposed Orient Paper, the report went viral, didn't expect that, realized that this was a systemic issue with Chinese companies listing in the US that they were pretty much all committing fraud. And it became a race against other activist short sellers who like the profession suddenly became a profession. And yeah, and it was just this embittering experience that I had where I'm like, oh, you know, we're getting lied to in microcap land. Let's look up the chain. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. Now, all of a sudden, these cases of fraud were getting real attention because big investors had bought stock in companies that weren't quite as they seemed. And so we, we sprinted to expose those over the next two years and finally um, came up for air and, um, you know, thought about like, what's the cost? And so when I connected those dots, I was like, anywhere there's liquidity and stock borrow, there are going to be people in the markets doing things they shouldn't be doing. You know, the, the dumb guys, you know, go and they rob convenience stores. The smart guys, they'll go to the financial markets. So that we went global starting in 2012, looking for dysfunction really in any market that makes sense for us and from a trading perspective. And that's how I got here. Where Block got to was Muddy Waters. So Muddy Waters, um, the first incarnation of this business, I started in 2010 and basically an activist short selling model. So we, we look for companies that are, if not frauds from a technical or legal perspective, are at least intellectually fraudulent. And we short those, we short the stocks or sometimes the bonds and go public with our analyses or our reports that explain what's really going on at these companies. So I think it's I think of it as a form of investigative journalism or investigative financial journalism, but married to a non-traditional revenue model. And in 2016, we began managing outside capital. So the, the non-traditional revenue model portion now is actually a fully uh, registered, uh, well, fully SEC registered private fund uh, manager. So Muddy Waters essentially does deep dive investigative journalism, filling a gap in the market created after the Great Recession. The idea was you take your short position and then you go find a journalist who's looking for a really interesting story to dig into and you give them the story. They do their work and hopefully they end up publishing an article exposing the company. But that model has become non-viable really because, um, I mean, you've had just newsrooms have been cut, experienced reporters have been laid off, the human attention span has shrunk. So there isn't the content, there isn't the appetite for that kind of long form, deep dive investigative journalism 
anymore, especially in finance. So as the traditional media has receded from the space, that left an opening for people such as ourselves who said, we're actually, we can bring more sophisticated analyses to bear than traditional media did because, you know, I've got a former auditor who works with me, got, I mean, we, we take a team approach here and we, we engage lawyers and investigators. So we throw a lot of resources at this. So we can be more, we can do much better research and reporting than traditional media has done. And to pay for its business, Muddy Waters takes on risk by building a short position or selling shares in companies it believes are fraudulent. Then, when the time is right, it releases its findings and hopefully makes money when the value of the shares in the company it's outing falls. It's critical that day one have a real reaction to stock price because if you don't have that, then the investors aren't going to ask the questions of the managements. And then the managements can basically, everybody can pretend that this didn't happen. Because one thing you have to understand about the long holders vis-a-vis short activists is the long holders want us to be wrong. They want us to fail initially. But if there's enough of an initial reaction or they've lost money, then they're forced to care. And if they're forced to care and they start asking questions of the company, that's when usually it will, if the, if the campaign will be successful, all this pressure is put on the company and things start to break on the inside. Decisions are made not to be so aggressive or if it's a fraud, they realize they have to like, you know, just tank the numbers because they can't continue with the fraud. Um, directors resign, CFO might resign, it could be an investigation. The auditor pays somewhat closer attention. So these are the things that will get you a win over the long term as a short activist, but it's really kind of dependent on, most cases, on day one. Like, does the market seem to care, or are people being forced to care? And when we do what we do, if we do it well, we get sued, we get attention from hostile regulators who are set upon us by companies who, you know, lobby the government and are at the same cocktail parties with government officials and, you know, and regulatory officials. But that's basically the nature of this beast of activist short selling. So we've stepped into a breach that at this point is almost entirely unpopulated by traditional media. Um, and we we out wrongdoing or just I mean, in unethical, I'd say immoral practices, if not outright illegal practices. And we pay for it by trading these the companies that we're reporting on. So with all that risk, what does it take to become an activist investor? That's coming up. Think you've got what it takes to be an activist short seller? Block says from his experience, short sellers in general are a different breed. My observation of us as a group uh, is that many of us are socially awkward. So when, you know, every summer prior to COVID, one of the traditional short selling funds in the US had a big event that was just fantastic event and like short sellers would come even from Europe. And just being in that crowd, you're like, yeah, most of these people would have probably been somewhat marginalized in high school at the very least. And so I think that being, you know, having kind of been rejected by the mainstream, or I should say maybe never accepted by the mainstream throughout most of our lives 
has made it, you know, has, has by necessity really given us the ability to think very critically about the mainstream and therefore consensus. Block says his childhood also had a major influence on who and what he has become. Growing up in a single parent household, Block was left largely to his own devices. He says he was an outsider, but reverse engineered how to be popular by throwing parties while never really being on the inside. The community he grew up in was wealthy, with strong ties to Wall Street, but that only contributed to his apathy. So being on the outside, looking in at the, the pretty people who, again, like I said, there were very strong ties to Wall Street, I began to see, see through the facade, like these intact families, you know, like parents were alcoholics, mothers were on like, you know, antidepressants, you know, like maximum dosages, um, families were, you know, levered to the hilt, needing their kids to get scholarships, even though they had a vacation home and, you know, country club membership. So seeing through that facade, it was a survival skill, right? Because if you're being shunned by the mainstream effectively, you know, if you don't want to feel like you're a loser, you need to feel like the mainstream, they're losers. So, you, you know, you develop that critical eye and it became, you know, and so what, what really developed within me and, you know, I, I think things I'm saying here apply broadly to short sellers as a group, you know, in some form or another, but, you know, what, what happened to me is I, I began to loathe hypocrisy because that's what I saw around me, right? Like the people who were constantly putting themselves on this pedestal vis-a-vis -vis me, you know, because my parents were divorced and the alcoholic and parent and da-da-da. It's like, you guys, your parents were just better at covering this stuff up and you were better at covering this up. And at least, look, man, I've been transparent here. You have not. And so that really gave me an intense dislike for hypocrites and hypocrisy that exists to today. So that's where I come from. And I think I'm shaped by that experience growing up where again, like I, I out of necessity had to see through the facades and that's effectively what we do as activist short sellers, you know, especially when, you know, with, with muddy waters, we, we generally play in a, I'd say in a larger market cap, pond than we fish in a larger market cap pond than most activist short sellers do. So we will, you know, we will criticize companies. We will expose companies and managements that are banked by prestigious investment banks and have prestigious named law firms representing them. And that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's to say, you know what? I know the deal here. Okay. There are thousands of investors out there who do not, who think that you at the investment bank actually do something called due diligence. I know, and you know, that you don't do it. You just want to pump out financial product. And you pumped out a really bad one here. And your equity research analysts are beholden effectively to the managements of the companies they cover. And the general public doesn't want to see that. So I'm going to go at, I'm going to go at you, man. Like I'm going to expose what's going on. While morally virtuous, the business is tough, stressful, and not for everyone. I had a, a partner, it was an old college friend of mine who um, had been at PIMCO. And yeah, we'd known each other since college. He thought he had a good sense of what my business was like. And then he joined and it was like day one. It was like, hey man, uh, just to let you know, um, we just got hit with a, uh, a request from the SEC on behalf of the AMF in France. So we're under AMF investigation. 
oh, and we just got hit with this lawsuit here by the company, this company that we shorted a, you know, a few weeks ago. <laughs> and he's just, and so like this guy was genuinely by the end of his tenure here, I mean, despite all of the conversations he'd had with me and all of my explanations to him about what makes this business hard and my venting to him and, and telling like, and I really, really was, you know, I really was encouraging him to think long and hard before deciding to leave PIMCO to join here. Even then he was still shocked by how difficult and just emotionally taxing this business is. So how does he do it? Look, at the end of the day, you have to have thick skin. You have to be able to find ways to, you know, let all the negativity roll off you. I mean, this is a much harder business than people think it is from the outside. But, you know, playing probabilities, it's still, I think, a great strategy if you can deal with all of the headaches, all of the blowback, handle all of the money you're going to spend on legal and the time it's going to take and blah, blah, blah. You know, and if it and if it gets you out of bed in the morning to basically expose hypocrisy, then it's still a good strategy. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy.